0: We're working our way through Luke's Gospel, I ask, if you will, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 39. We will read through verse 45. Probably your English Bibles, mark it as Mary visits Elizabeth or something like that. Luke 1, beginning with verse 39. Please join with me in prayer. Our Father, we, we offer our prayer, indeed, as we have just sung, not, we pray, with hearts that are untouched by your Spirit, not cold, flagging hearts. But indeed, if that is the case with any of us here, then may the Spirit of God warm our hearts even now with the excitement of what it means that you have given to us the Word, and that we live docilely under it. We do not question its authority. We submit to it, and we pray that our lives will be transformed by it. But, Father, we also know that as your people worship your name, there will be those among us on any given Sunday that do not know you at all, and we pray that as they see your people worship you, as they understand by the Spirit's movement within their heart that they need a Savior, we pray that you will grant them saving faith and that you will effectually call them out of darkness into light and apply the word to their hearts as well. And so now, Father, as we turn once again to Luke's gospel, this is your word, and we pray that our hearts our hearts, may be eager to hear it and to see Christ on this page. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 39. This is the Word of God. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, in this text we have the sign of the leaping baby. I wonder if you've ever thought, as you've read through Luke's gospel, about the meaning of this leaping baby in Elizabeth's womb. Do you think it might have something to do with the joy and blessing that comes upon those who receive the promise of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord? Is this merely a natural event or is this a supernatural event? To put it plainly, is it a revelatory event, an event by which the Lord is revealing something of His grace and mercy to us sinners in need of grace? Now, as we've been working through this wonderful gospel We have seen these two announcements that have taken place, first to Elizabeth regarding the the birth of John the Baptist, and also to Mary, the annunciation that there would be virginal conception and that the Son of God would be born into this world through her. And so what we're facing here is the wonderful, tremendous, awesome reality that the second person of the Trinity Is about to come into this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And there was a sign that was given to Mary for her encouragement by Gabriel the angel in verse 36 of chapter 1. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called Baron. Now, of course, Elizabeth's conception was not a virginal conception, but she was too old to bear children, and this was a miraculous conception nonetheless. And so the text tells us that Mary hastens to the Judean hill country. This would have been near the city of Jerusalem. It's about a 100-mile journey. It would have taken her three or four days to get there. She wants to glorify God and share this news with her relative, who also is wonderfully blessed. And now John and Jesus are brought together for the first time through their expectant mothers. The uniqueness of John is clear, but the utter superiority of Jesus in the womb of the virgin is made plain. And we see here great joy. When God brings salvation to sinners, it is such joy that to use Luther's phrase, it is such joy that it shatters the heart. It is a joyful thing that we see in this chapter. So let's begin first by seeing that Mary greets Elizabeth and baby John leaps for joy. Mary greets Elizabeth and baby John leaps for joy. The greeting, of course, happens in verse 40. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, it just says greeted, but of course, this would have been somewhat of a ritual in the ancient world when they would greet and they would exchange all sorts of wonderful news and comments to one another. And because they are relatives, they would have shown great love. But the interesting thing is that John in Elizabeth's womb leaps in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. When Mary greeted Elizabeth, John leapt. Now, this might bring to mind another event in the Old Testament, Genesis 25:22 through 26, in which Jacob and Esau wrestled in Rebekah's womb. There Esau and Jacob struggled for supremacy. The movement of the children, in other words, had redemptive or uh, special redemptive significance. There's no struggle here, of course, it's not precisely the same, yet I encourage you to see the supernatural context for the movement of John in Elizabeth's womb. Now, I do want to stress that this is not something natural, that this is something supernatural. If we're going to understand the text, I think that's required of us that we see that there's something special, supernatural, revelatory that is happening with the leap of this baby in Elizabeth's womb. In other words, it's not what some of you ladies go through when you are pregnant and the baby kicks and moves, or maybe you get excited and the baby gets excited. I know that when, um, when Vicky carried Evan and we played Beethoven or Bach or Rachmaninoff, we called him Baby Orca. I mean, it was a tremendous thing, the movement in the womb, and it's a wonderful thing. But that's not what's happening here, I'm convinced. Now, wait, someone says. Elizabeth was excited to see Mary, and that caused John to leap. That's all. No, it's not. We should see this as a part of the supernatural revelation, the working of God to bring about our salvation. As Calvin put it, it is enough for us to know that God had already testified to both Mary and Elizabeth that the fruit of the virgin born was the Son of God. Since John the Baptist, a tiny creature in his mother's womb, sensed in a child barely conceived, the majesty of God. And that is how Elizabeth speaks as prophetess and sees the event and speaks of it. So moving on in the text, the second thing we see is that Elizabeth explains her baby's leap. Now let's read again verses 41 through 44. Now recall that the baby who is in Elizabeth's womb is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a good idea that we get a couple of Old Testament passages fixed firmly again in our minds, shall we? So turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 40 and remember this prophecy, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And now comes the prophecy of John the Baptist. Verse 3, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is a prophecy of the forerunner. In Mark's gospel, for example, in the opening verses, this passage is cited as referring to John the Baptist. Or if you'll turn to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 gives another prophecy of a forerunner to the Lord Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so before the coming of the Lord Jesus, according to Malachi 3, is the coming of the messenger who will precede him. So you see, John the Baptist fulfills a major role in God's redemptive plan. We read in verse 41, back here in Luke chapter 1, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I could take you to many Old Testament passages that reference the filling of the Holy Spirit as something that comes upon the prophet or the prophetess, and that is what is happening here. She is filled with the Holy Spirit in order that she may be a prophetess, that she may speak the word of the Lord. And so there is God-filled significance in this leap. This is revelation. God is saying something through this. The Lord is strengthening Mary through Elizabeth. What then is God saying? What is the significance of this happy moment? Well, again... Verses 41 and 42, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so Mary is blessed among women because of God's call in her life, her place in the history of redemption. And by the way, that's why I asked Joel to read this morning from Judges chapter 5, verse 24, because Joel wrote about Yael, Jael we typically call her, who, as you know, was used of the Lord to overcome and kill Sisera, the enemy of the Lord. And because of her special place in redemptive history, she is called in Judges 5:24, one who is blessed among women. Now we see that phrase repeated here, of Mary because the Lord used Yael, Jael as a deliverer in that period of redemptive history. Now that phrase is applied to Mary and she is blessed of women because the Lord will give her a special place in the history of redemption. Jael was blessed, she was a deliverer. So with Mary, but much, much more greatly in this period of redemptive history, will she be one who is used of the Lord to deliver God's people. The child, too, is blessed, the fruit of Mary's womb, the virgin-born Savior. No fruit of Adam's sin in him, but blessed is the fruit of Mary's womb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and be the Savior of sinners, Elizabeth acknowledges that she is humble to have even a part to play in this great thing. And then, Mary is designated by Elizabeth as the mother of my Lord. That's in verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, what does this mean? Is she simply saying that this is a great person? Is it only saying that the one to be born, my Lord, is the Messiah? Well, yes, that, but is that alone what she is saying? No, I do not think so. I believe that this is a clear allusion to the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Dean Alford says in his great old work on the New Testament, the word cure you, Lord, as applied to the unborn babe, can no otherwise be explained Than as uttered in the spirit of prophecy and expressing the divine nature of our Lord. So Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit as prophetess, blesses Mary and is amazed that she can even be near the one who will bear the Son of God, who will be the mother of my Lord. Now, many argue against this interpretation. Who could have known at this stage about the deity of Christ? Well, God knows, God understands, God knows, the one who sent his son into the world. Now, we're not arguing that Elizabeth fully understood what she prophesied. Old Testament prophets frequently prophesied things about which they had scant or little understanding. But what was given to Elizabeth to say prophetically was not given only for that moment. It was given for us who are seated here today. It is given for you and for me. And the same is true of the revelation by Gabriel to Mary. Mary could not fully understand at the time what it meant that she was to bear the Son of God. But she came to understand it, and we understand what it means because we have a complete and a closed canon. And all of this was not for Mary's benefit and Elizabeth's benefit alone. It was written for our instruction and blessing. Now, all of that having been analyzed, I hope that you begin to see, do you, the significance of the leap of the baby in Elizabeth's womb. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 1, in which the birth of John the Baptist was foretold, said he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. My assumption is that he was regenerated in his mother's womb. He was already being prepared for the office of forerunner while he was in his mother's womb. And in verse 41, we read this morning, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Why? Because the promise is that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. One thing is for sure, the coming of Jesus is the cause of great joy, great joy in this passage. By the way, do you know that? Have you experienced that? Do you by faith understand what it is to know how deep your sin is and the joy of knowing that because of the coming of this child into the world who would go to a cross and be raised from the dead, that you also share in this incredible exultant ecstatic joy of salvation do you know that for yourselves John then leaps as forerunner he couldn't speak he couldn't yet raise his finger and say behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world he will say that he can't speak but by divine revelation and impulse he can leap and so that's what he does It's divine revelation, it's a divine indicator, it has divine significance. The Lord points to the action of the baby John to indicate his role. No, this is not just the excitement of Elizabeth at seeing Mary that then excites the baby. This is supernatural revelation. But then the text goes on, and thirdly, will you notice with me that in the context of this great exultant joy, and this true excitement that Elizabeth blesses Mary. And it's found here in verse 45. Luke 1, And, she adds, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now some commentators have pointed out, and I think rightly, that the use of the participle here, the one who believes... rather than saying, blessed are you. So the use of the participle, the one who believes, makes Mary an example of faith. Contrast this with Zechariah, who at this moment is unable to speak because he did not fully believe Gabriel's announcement about the birth of John the Baptist. What will happen to him we will see a little later in a subsequent sermon. But here we have two approaches to the method of divine revelation. Two approaches to the promise of Christ. Two approaches to God's word. Believing it or not believing it. Trusting it or not trusting it. Believing, belief, faith, or unbelief. Look at it again. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed the promise. And in that, the New Testament calls upon you also and upon me to believe the promise. Because the promise ultimately is Christ. The promise that goes all the way back to the first promise in Genesis 3.15 that had been worked out through redemptive history as the barometric pressure, you will remember, pushes us on and on and on to Bethlehem, we are also called upon to believe all of those promises and to believe the promise as did Mary in her place in redemptive history. Blessed is the one who believes that fulfillment will come. S.G. de Graaf, the Dutch theologian, said it quite beautifully. The sign that Mary received from Elizabeth to confirm her faith did not lie. Elizabeth, the older of the two, blessed and anointed Mary with the joy of faith. Of course, Elizabeth had seen much of the Lord's miracles before this meeting. Yet when the Lord comes to us with the fullness of his miraculous grace, it surprises and delights us and catches us off guard time after time. It is so much greater than we could ever Imagine. So Mary believed God's promise that the Messiah would come and that she would bear Him by virginal conception and be used of God to bring Him into the world, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners like you and me. So, I think verse 45 calls upon us to ask the question, what does it mean for us to believe the promise? What does it mean for you to believe the promise and for me to believe the promise? Because you see, we also are called to believe. We must likewise believe that the remainder of God's promises will come to pass, which he has given to us in Holy Scripture. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. You and I are called upon to embrace the promise by faith. This faith is based upon something sure and upon something certain. Faith must have an object and the object of faith, the object is the promise of God. The promises of God become the object of our faith. Ultimately, Christ himself is the object of our faith. And so our faith is based upon that which is certain. Are we not recipients of the fulfillment of the promise made to Mary? Aren't we? then we also should believe the remainder of the promises given to us in sacred scripture. Right? Is that right? Blessed is this woman who believed God's promises, who believed His word. But also, blessed are you who believe God's promises and believe His word. Now, this leads me to the fourth thing that I want to say from and on the basis of this text. God's promises depend upon God's character, upon his character. We will see that next week when, Lord willing, we come to the Magnificat and we see how Scripture filled Mary and she broke out into praise. But everything here is divine and the stress is on the one who promised Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God spoke. What was spoken to her from the Lord hangs completely upon the character of God. Does it not? Doesn't it? It holds, hangs completely upon the character of God. Back in verse 37 of this chapter, when Gabriel spoke to Mary, For nothing will be impossible with God. And you therefore can know three things about all of God's promises given to you and to me in sacred scripture. There are three things you can know about the promises of God. First, God's promises have behind them divine omnipotence. Behind every promise of God is his almighty power. Nothing will be impossible with God, or we read in Romans 4.21 and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So that's the first thing. You may know that all of God's promises have behind them divine omnipotence. And then you may know that God's promises, therefore, because of God's omnipotence, because of his character, must be unfailing. First Kings 8:56 Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he has promised there hath not failed one word of all his good promises which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant You may know that behind it is divine omnipotence You may know that all of God's promises are unfailing and you may know that all of the promises of God are certain in Christ his promises are anchored in Christ and in His redemptive work. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us, which is a way of saying they're absolutely, unquestionably certain. So three things you may know about the promise of God. Mary believed the promise. God said there's nothing impossible for him. Believing the word of God, Mary would know and you can know that behind every promise is divine omnipotence, behind every promise is his unfailing character, and behind every promise is certainty in Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of the promises of God unto his people to Mary... To you are unfailing and you and I are called to believe God when he promises just as surely as Mary of old was called to believe God's word and to rely upon the promise. So do you see your personal calling in your place in redemptive history is to believe God's promise just as surely as Mary was called and Elizabeth was called to believe the promises of God. Now I'm asking you a question I want you to answer Do you understand that Mary had a place in redemptive history in which she was called upon to believe the promise of God, but you also have a place in redemptive history in which you are called upon to believe the promise of God? Do you understand that? Do you get it? Mary had the Old Testament promises and the Messianic uh, uh, promises and the specific promise brought to her by the angel Gabriel to believe. But you have a place in redemptive history. You live between the ascension of Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. And in this epoch of redemptive history in which you live, you also are called upon To believe the promises of God, to trust God, believe His Word, rely upon His promises as we are pilgrims and strangers in this world on our way to our heavenly home. Now, I hope you see that. Uh, I'm not making this up. Even though verse 45 is spoken to Mary, verse 45 has application to you and to me this morning. Blessed is the person, the Christian who believes that God will fulfill what he has spoken. But maybe you cannot pull up many of those promises that God has given in his word for your good and for your assurance and certainty. Maybe you have not focused upon those promises, or maybe you're not really hanging upon them in your life, or dwelling upon them in your thoughts, or living upon them in your prayers, or in your daily existence. Well, if so, that needs to change. That really must change. For God's glory and for your good, you in the place in redemptive history where God has placed you, you also need to be one who believes the promises of God. So let me give you a few, just a few of the promises of God, some from the Old Testament that are still relevant to us, many from the New that apply also to us. Let me give you just a few of the promises of God that you are called upon to believe in this epoch of redemptive history. But even these few, I hope, will come as a torrent, a life-giving torrent to your soul because verse 45 applies to you and to me. So fifthly, What are promises that remain for us in God's word upon which we are called upon to rely that you and I are called upon to believe? Mary was called upon to believe all of those Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. She was called upon to believe the word of the angel Gabriel to her that the virginal conception of the Lord would take place and that this virginally conceived child would be born the savior of the world that's what she was called to believe what are you called to believe well here are a few of them do you believe in christ alone for your salvation do you god promises john one twelve. but as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name John three fourteen and fifteen and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans one sixteen for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you repentant? Are you a believer in Jesus, and daily you are believing and repenting of your sins? Are you repentant, and yet can there be doubt within your heart because your sin is so great does he receive my trust in Christ when I repent? Are you repentant? Here's what He promises to you. Psalm 34:18: The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saves such as be of a contrite spirit? Micah 7:18: Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Do you need the promise of salvation? Perhaps someone here is not yet trusted in Christ. Let me repeat one verse that I've already given, Romans 1:16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you need to know that your guilt is removed? Would you like a promise that your guilt is removed? I mean your guilt, your awful, sinful guilt that would weigh you down if it remained on your record. It would weigh you down, 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 infinitely down under the infinite punishment of God. Would you like to know that that guilt is removed? Psalm 103, 10 through 12, "...for he hath not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities." For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44 verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Do you need the promise of eternal life? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Are you, Christian, humbled under the mighty hand of God? Are you humbled before the majesty of God? Does God make a promise to you in that sense of utter humiliation before his throne? Psalm 138, 6. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Isaiah 66, 2. To this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Luke fourteen eleven. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Or maybe you're a Christian and you are going through tremendous trials and troubles and your affliction is incredibly deep. Do you need the assurance of God's providential care, perhaps in the midst of your affliction? Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Isaiah 43, verses 2 and 3, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overthrow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Second Corinthians four seventeen. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you need to know in the midst of the struggles of your life that you have a faithful high priest who presents his merit before the Father on your behalf, and that your prayers are heard and answered through him? Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need the promise that in the midst of this world where everything seems to be shaking and you lose Over and over again, things that are dear to you. Do you need the promise of an eternal inheritance? John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Or do you need a promise that when you die your soul will be with the Lord, Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 through 23, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what shall I choose? I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt the two, having a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are confident, I say, confident, I say. And willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you need assurance that the Lord's love for you... God says He loves you, right? His Bible says so. His Word says so. Do you believe His Word? Do you? Do you believe it when He says He loves you? Do you need assurance from God's own Word that the love of the Lord for you will never, never, never change? Romans 8, 35 and following... nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that promise of his love to you? Do you need the promise of resurrection in the last day when Jesus comes again? The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. First Corinthians fifteen twenty. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one. And following, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. In victory, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of this fallen world, as you, believers, struggle and you move on to your heavenly home, do you need a promise of ultimate deliverance from the pain and the sorrow of this fallen and sinful, broken world as you share in its brokenness. Revelation 21:4, and God shall wipe all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are past. Away, I told you I would give you a few promises. (laughs) Pastor, you haven't even mentioned my favorite promise in the Bible. Someone may be saying, yes, there are so many. Have we not been given many exceeding great and precious promises, and they are all yea and amen in Christ. Mary was called in her place in redemptive history to believe the promise of God. You, Christian, you and I are called to believe the promise in our place in redemptive history. Mary was called to believe that the Savior would come and that through her womb, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would be born into the world. We are called to believe in the virgin-born Savior who came and who went to a cross and who rose from the dead and to trust Him in our lives and believe that He will come again and take us unto Himself. If we follow our own understanding, we will always be in a whirl of doubt. Children, young people, if you follow Autonomy, if you become a law unto yourself, if you follow your own understanding, you will always live in a world of doubt. But if we believe the promises of God, you will live in the certainty of faith. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, was so right when he said, The inviolable certainty of the promise is the undoubted felicity of those that build upon it and expect their all from it. Would you like to hear it again? The inviolable certainty of the promise is the undoubted felicity of those that build upon it and expect their all from it. Yes, yes. Ultimately, the point of this text, as we see fulfillment and Mary blessed for believing the word. And our call also to believe that word. Ultimately, what we are being told in this text is the very simple, needful, absolutely certain revelation. God will be as good as his word. And God's people said, Amen.